Hello again, and thank you for joining us on Space Nuts, where we talk uh, all sorts of astronomy and space science news from space agencies and astronomers and scientists and physicists, uh, things that have been discovered, things that have been achieved, and we try to unravel some of the great mysteries of the universe. And we may have one of those solved today, perhaps. Uh, so whether you're at home or at work or sitting back in front of a lake fishing, whatever you're doing, thanks for joining us on this edition of Space Nuts. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. It does indeed feel good to be here, and thank you for your company, as I said. Uh, my name is Andrew Dunkley. I am your host, and joining me, uh, as he always does, without question, without claiming any money, without uh, really thinking about it, is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer <laughs> at large. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. Australia's living fossil. Australia's <laughs> living fossil, yes. Congratulations again on uh, on your uh, honorary doctorate. And uh, I've, I've told a few people and they pass on their congratulations. Oh, that's so lovely. Thank you very much. Good for you. Thank you. Yeah. And I'm, I, I know I said it sort of off stage, but uh, loving the goatee. Oh, good. Good and glad to hear it, Andrew. If you watch us on YouTube, you'll, uh, you'll be able to pick that up. <laughs> I think it, oh, yeah, it suits you. That's very sporting. My um, my young, my son, uh, who I saw on Monday at the graduation, uh, he told me it makes me look exactly like my brother, who's oh, one of these wow. uh, fifty years or something. So. Well, it it uh, takes seconds off your age, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, now today we've got a few things to talk about. This first story surprises me. Uh, Apollo samples that were collected fifty years ago, some of them were not opened until recently. I've why would you bring them back and not open? I don't get that. Um, and a particular black hole merger may have an explanation. We'll be looking into that. Plus, we have questions about the Thermi paradox. Uh, Mars, can we kickstart its core? That's a good question. And we do a follow-up on that uh, light speed story uh, or question we answered a few weeks ago uh, about it um, slowing down in the vacuum of space if it goes into a glass tube and then speeding up again someone wants to know how that's possible uh so we yeah we will we'll try and answer that for you greg and uh whatever else happens just happens what happens in space nuts stays in space nuts as they as they've never said before uh but fred let's uh start off with uh this uh situation with apollo samples and they brought back quite a lot of stuff and some of it um just sort of sat there for 50 years sealed and I, I assume forgotten, or just uh, oh, we'll we'll get to that at some stage. And it took them fifty years. Yeah, it, at first sight, it does seem weird. I agree with you, but there is a very, very good explanation, and I think you know it, it's a brilliant reasoning. So um, I can't remember the number. I think it's about three hundred and eighty kilograms altogether of rock and soil that the Apollo astronauts brought back with them in the 1960s and 70s. Um, I do know, because I've got the number in front of me here, that it, it was a total of 2,196 samples. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, it's, you know, they had a fair number. And um, it wasn't that wasn't really the reason why they've waited 50 years for, for some of them. Um, the real reason, and it's really cunning stuff, you know, it's forward thinking of, a, of the first order, 
the scientists who were interested in these moon rock samples 50 years ago knew that uh, in 50 years' time, the technology to analyze them would have would have advanced out of sight compared with what there was uh, in the 1960s and 70s. Forward so, thinking. Yeah, so they, so they reserved, I think, probably three. Okay. Um, uh, it's uh, of which I think it's I think it's three. Uh, there might be more actually, but one of them has now been opened, and that's why you know that's why the news is big. Um, it was um, actually Laurie Laurie Glaze, Glaze of the uh, director of she, um, director of the planetary science division at NASA headquarters. Who, who wrote in a statement that NASA knew that science and technology would evolve and allow scientists to study the material in new ways to address new questions in the future. Brilliant, isn't it? That's exactly yeah. what's happened. Um, I'm not sure to what extent. I mean, I, mean I, I think things were pretty well advanced in the 1960s and 70s. So that's when I was beginning my career as a working scientist. But, um, but you know, things have moved on just out of sight since then. If it's anything like the way we do astrophysics, um, planetary science has, has come on by leaps and bounds. Mm. So um, a tube of material. Uh, 35 centimetres long, four centimetres wide, uh, which was hammered into the ground actually on um, on the Apollo 17 mission, the last the last of the uh, of the uh, Apollo missions in December 1972. Uh, Gene Cernan and Harrison Schmidt were the the two astronauts who walked w- on the moon. Um, wasn't Harrison Schmidt a geologist? I think you're right. Yeah, yes, I think you're right. Uh, so, yeah, I think he kept getting into trouble because he got so excited about just running out of oxygen and they were saying, hurry up, hurry up. Yeah. So um, I think he, that's right. Yes, it'd be, it's a mistake to send a geologist to the moon, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> I would think so. It's just going to be like a kid in a lolly shop. <laughs> um, anyway, they, they kind of hammered the tube into the ground, uh, pulled out the tube with rocks in it and vacuum and basically sealed it. On the moon, mm. and and that is the way it's been kept for fifty years. So not not only does it have rock in it, Andrew, but the the volatiles that might be you know um, locked up in these rock surfaces, sort of things that are gaseous like carbon dioxide um, at normal temperature here on Earth, and things um, that are liquid like water at normal temperature yeah. here on Earth. <clears throat> so the the uh, you know the existence of these gases kind of locked up within the rocks. That um, that, that there wouldn't be much because, of course, the, the lunar surface is essentially a vacuum. Mm. Um, but um, the idea is to, uh, and I don't think this has been done yet. Um, the idea, actually, no, the extraction has taken place. Sorry, Andrew. Uh, anyway, the idea is to extract them um, and the minute quantities that are there and uh, analyze them with the technology that um, it's really about the precision rather than the you know the the ability to do it this is spectrometry so you're looking at the absolute fine details of what's going on in these atoms Um, let me just check that Mm. and I did look at you 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 mentioned the weight of the material they brought back which I think we talked about not so long ago 842 pounds of stuff they brought back from the moon, which equates to 382 kilograms. So I was out by two kilograms. Oh, it's close enough. Round close down. Enough. 
<laughs> I rounded down, yeah. Yeah, 382. I had a feeling it was 380 thereabouts. Mm. Anyway, um, so the the process has started uh, back in, uh, in fact, last month, February uh, the 23rd, um, as the uh, the venerable physics.org website tells us, because that's, that's uh, one of the places where this story has been carried, uh, scientists began a weeks-long process aimed at piercing the main tube and harvesting the gas contained inside. Mm. And then um, as uh, over the coming weeks, they'll take the rock out as well, uh, and they'll break it up so that it can be studied by several different, different uh, teams. Uh, but what... I really like uh, about this sample is that it's not just any old sample, Andrew, um, because uh, where it came from is where there was a landslide. Um, oh. And uh, Julianne Gross, uh, Gross perhaps, deputy Apollo curator, uh, is quoted as saying, now we don't have rain on the moon, and so we don't quite understand how landslides happen on the moon. Mm. Uh, so that's a good point. Um, and so some of the research is, you know, um, is aimed at trying to understand how these rocks enable landslide, landslides to take place, what what causes them. Um, yeah, so it's... It, yeah, well, moonquakes do exist, as we know. Um, yeah. I, I guess that is a possibility. Um and so, actually, I was wrong there. I think there are there are there are there are three lunar samples still left after this one's been opened, which, okay. by the way, is known as seven three zero zero one. That's its name, um, and there are still three sealed lunar samples. So, you know, the question is, Andrew, which I'm sure you and I would ask if if we were there, uh, when will they be opened? Uh, yeah. Is it going to be another fifty years? Um, and we've got a, a quote, a nice quote from another senior curator, Ryan Ziegler. I doubt we'll wait another 50 years, particularly once they get the Artemis samples back. It might be nice to do a direct comparison in real time between whatever's coming back from Artemis and with one of these remaining unopened sealed cores. Mm. So now, the, well, the, the, the moon is once again drawing a lot of attention with, uh, well, the Chinese are pottering around up there at the moment and uh, the Americans want to send uh, in the next few months a um, uh, an Artemis rocket around the moon. An orbiter. That's the one we talked about last week where yep. you can put your name on a flash drive if you yep. want to. <laughs> uh, and, and that's with a view to going back there with a manned mission or, or a human mission. Let's uh, be politically correct. And yep. um, and, and uh, they're talking about putting the first woman on the moon. They're talking about putting the first uh, black person on the moon. And, you know, this is all great. I think it's all fantastic stuff. And the moon being our closest neighbour in terms of uh, what's out there is, um, yeah, we should be giving it much more attention. Uh, there's so many possibilities. And, of course, it will potentially be a great launch pad for missions beyond Earth and the Moon going forward. Yep. So, uh, yeah, learning everything about it right down to the geology, not a bad idea. <laughs> not a bad yeah, idea. Yeah, it's going to be, I mean, the next decade is going to see our knowledge of the Moon totally revolutionised, which is brilliant. Yeah. Just wondering, though, this is a sort of one of my stupid brain questions, would a landslide on the Moon happen in slow motion compared to Earth? Uh, yeah, it would, given that, you know, walking happens in slow motion. <laughs> yeah. It would, it would, uh, yeah, the, 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 um, 
acceleration due to gravity is lower on the moon, of course. Because mm. they did that experiment, I don't know which mission it was, where they dropped a, what was it, was it a hammer and a feather? It is, yeah, and there's a, a movie. And they both that. fell at the same That's speed. right, which is Galileo's. Yeah, um, so I possibly. wondered if a landslide would... Um, yeah, it would. Well, if you watch the clip of that, of the hammer and the feather, sorry, the feather, they kind of drift down. They, yes. They, they, don't, they don't. They don't drop like they would on Earth. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Very interesting. It's great stuff. Yeah. More to learn from the moon and uh, lots of exciting things happening um, on and around the moon in the not too distant future. And that Artemis One mission is slated to launch sometime in the next uh, few months. Mm hmm. Uh, so, and, and as we mentioned last week, if you want to get your name on the flash drive that they're going to put on the Artemis One rocket so that you, or at least your name, gets to do a, a lap of the moon, you can jump on the NASA website and, and register. I've got my boarding pass. I'll send you a boarding pass. It's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to and watching Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Zero G and I feel fine. Space nuts. Thanks for joining us. Always good to have your company uh, and uh, hope you're well too. Uh, by the way, if you want to become a patron of our, um, our, our little program, you can do that via our website. Uh, patrons are the people who put a few dollars in our bucket uh, once a month. Uh, you can choose how you want to do it. You can do it through Patreon. You can do it through uh, uh, one of those other ones that I can't remember now. Gee, I love live radio, uh, but um, it, it's uh, it's as easy as jumping onto our website and doing so. Um, PayPal, it was, uh, or you can buy us a cup of coffee. There's just a, a button there, so you can just um, you know send us the value of a cup of coffee as a one-off, and a lot of people have been doing that. So if you want to become a patron or a donor, uh, you can you can do so on spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. And if you don't want to do that, you can help us out another way by leaving reviews, whether you do that on YouTube or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or any of the other podcast, podcast sites. Um, yes, uh, leave us reviews. They help to get the word out and increase our audience. The more, the merrier, I say. And thanks for your support, by the way, if you are a patron. We, uh, we really do appreciate it. it. It enables us to do things like this. Make patches for our shirts. It's very important. Uh, now, uh, moving on to our next story, black holes, uh, one of the great mysteries of the universe. They are probably one of the most intriguing things uh, that have ever been discovered and studied, and we still don't know a heck of a lot about them, and we get so many questions from people asking about black holes. What if it's this? What if the... What if it's that? You know, I think this is what a black hole is. And uh, last week, the question, what happens when a black hole dies? And the answer is, we don't know. <laughs> but it could turn into a white hole. We don't know uh, because they take a long time to, you know, drop off the twig, basically. Uh, the latest news on black holes is a particular black hole merger, which they may now now be able to explain. We do know they merge and they get bigger as a consequence of that. But there's one that's hit the uh, the headlines, um, courtesy of, uh, is it the University of Copenhagen? Yes, that's correct. That's their press release. And uh, But it's work that's been done in Copenhagen as well as in the United States, in Oxford, and I think in Japan too. Um, wow. Maybe, maybe other nations. So it's a, this is a global um, collaboration. And that's often the case, Andrew, in 
work that involves the gravitational, you know, the observation of gravitational waves. So this is results from LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. Um, and that was the, the, the first instrument that was able to detect the gravitational signal of black holes merging. So this, these ripples that spe spread through space time, uh, yeah. not, not the gas in space or anything like that, it's space itself that's rippling um, when these giant gravitational phenomena take place. And um, yeah, gravitation and black hole mergers are among the, the, the biggest of those events. So um, this goes back to a particular gravitational wave event. We, I think uh, you and I spoke not very long ago about the, um, the number of discoveries of, of gravitational wave events clicked over 90. Mm. Um, it was either earlier this year or late last year. Um, uh, you know, it was back in 2015 when it was number one. In fact, we didn't find out about it until 2016, but that was the first one. Um, and now these things are, you know, it's it's like almost like a factory because uh, LIGO as well has been joined by the Italian uh, 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 gravitational wave detector, which is called Virgo, uh, and there, there are others too uh, coming on stream. So... Um, uh, the, the the event in question took place in 2019. It is called GW190521, which suggests it occurred on the 21st of May 2019, uh, which is what the numbers unscramble as. Um, and it's a, a black hole merger. Sometimes these things are neutron star mergers. Sometimes they're, you know, black hole and a neutron. Um, but And you can tell... The difference between these things just by the gravitational wave signature that we get the, the, okay. you know, it's, it's that chirp that um because they're in the audio frequency range it's amazing so two black holes coming together go whoop, uh, and the and the chirp itself is the is when they actually finally become a single object and stop emitting gravitational waves right um so it's the, the frequency goes up as the collision you know as the collision takes place um and and it's by analyzing the exact waveform if you like of that of that event that you can get all the details like the masses of the objects um the orbits that they were in their spin all of these things come out of the analysis and that was what made gw190521 unusual because um two things that uh well there were three things about it that were weird one is that the black holes were more massive than uh, were, were expected before. I can't remember what their masses were, but we, in in terms of the mass of what we call stellar mass black holes, the ones that probably come or, or originate from the collapse of a massive star, they go up to twenty, thirty solar masses tops. And I can't remember what the two in GW one nine oh five two one were, mm. but I think they were a bit heavier than that. Um, and but also there was um. A, basically a flash of radiation as well. Um, I'm not sure where that observation comes from, but um, the, the there was it's not usual for these black hole mergers to produce a flash of light, but this one did. Wow. But the, the really weird thing, um, and it might not, you know, to us perhaps it doesn't seem all that weird, um, the two black holes that were merging as they spun together they they were in orbits around their common centre of mass. That's how these things work. But the orbits were highly elliptical. They were very elongated. Oh. Um, whereas all the others have been circular. 
uh, you know, the orbits have been circular, and that's um, that's why uh, that that's because. The, well, I might actually just read a bit. This again comes from the from phys.org, great place to get a fabulous website. Um, and it's from one of the um, uh, professors at the University of Florida, one of the one of the institutions that uh, contributed to this work. So here it comes. The gravitational wave event GW190521 is the most surprising discovery to date. The black hole's masses and spins were already surprising, but even more surprising was that they appeared not to have a circular orbit leading up to the merger. Uh, and that is because the fundamental nature of the gravitational waves emitted by black holes, which doesn't just bring the pair of black holes closer than for them to finally merge, but also acts to circularize their orbits. That's actually a, a different professor at Columbia University. Uh, and once again, yes, this is all from a press release from Copenhagen, just to give all the acknowledgements. So that the, the bottom line there is that normally when black holes merge, the physics of what's happening actually makes their orbit circular. But in this case, it didn't. Mm. And so that's uh, why this is such an interesting piece of research. And another quote, if I may, it's great to have the quotes from the original scientists in, the, in this work. Uh, this is Johann Zamsing in Copenhagen. Uh, it made me start thinking about such non-circular mergers can happen with the surprisingly high probability, as the observation suggests, that's uh, the, the high probability comes about, I guess, because, you know, if you say there's nine, been 90 mergers, there's actually been fewer black hole-black hole mergers. Um, the 90 is the total number of gravitational wave events we've seen. Uh, in, in that number, to get one, one in 90 that's non-circular is a high probability. It doesn't sound that high. Uh, you might expect it to be one in a million or something like that, but it's, it's you know, of the order of one in 100. Mm. And so um, the answer that they've come up with is that what's happening here is we've got uh, black hole collisions, black, stellar mass black hole collisions happening within the accretion disk of a supermassive black hole at the centre of a galaxy. Oh. So what you've got is a supermassive black hole. We know this happens um, in, in the centres probably of most galaxies, and sometimes those things are really, uh, you know, they're, they're very energetic until you get material emitted at the poles of the, of the black hole. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, the one that was inclined. Actually, I might just mention, um, if I may digress for one minute. Um, sure. Uh, <laughs> Very unlikely, Fred. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff from Avalon, a, a person I know well, uh, phoned me up and said, "You said that uh, what was it that the angle of tilt of this black hole? This is the one we talked about, I think, three or four weeks ago, Andrew. Yeah, was uh, more acute than Uranus, <laughs> uh, which came, which yeah, sort of." Uh, you know, had undertones that um, I hadn't realised when I said those words. So, um, I <laughs> you know, I, I picked up on it too, and did I you? let that one go through. <laughs> you didn't. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I missed it altogether. I do apologise for that. That's okay. That uh, just shows that you've got a lot more integrity yeah. than the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to work out what I'm going to say next. Uh, oh, put my foot in my mouth each time. Anyway, um, so so normally, you know, with a with a super a 
supermassive black hole that's gobbling up its surroundings. You get these jets of material that are usually perpendicular to the disk, the accretion disk, yeah. and and they you know they they become um, radio galaxies, very bright, sometimes quasars in the early universe. Our, our galaxy is a bit quieter than that, but it probably still has a at least some sort of accretion disk going on around it because we occasionally see infrared uh, flashes from the galactic center mm. uh, here in our own galaxy. Anyway, the bottom line is the the idea that's come from this research is that because the you know this disk of swirling materials got higher velocity and density than uh, than the, its surroundings, uh, it suggests that. The, the stellar mass black holes that might form within that um, the environment, they're just, uh, well, the quote is uh, from uh, uh, Bensi Koskis, I think is the way it's pronounced, uh, from the University of Oxford. In these environments, the typical velocity and density of black holes is so high that smaller black holes bounce around as in a giant game of billiards and yeah. wide circular binaries cannot exist. So that's why you know that the the, the, um, the the thing is so elongated, and I think it's also possible that it, that's the environment uh, that would have given rise to the flash uh, that was seen. Um, it's uh, because the, it's in, in a disk of material, and so you've got this huge sudden in, input of gravitational energy into it, uh, and uh, that probably um, you know explains um, the emission of light mm. uh, coming from the gas around it. Yeah. I can only see one big problem with the theory, Fred. I knew you'd pick a hole in it, Andrew. Yeah, a billion balls are traditionally red. <laughs> this is, there's one black one, though. Oh, that's snooker. Oh, yeah. Billiards is a different right. game. Uh, no yeah. pockets. Of course, yes, billiards is only red. Yeah. That's correct, yes. There you go. Well, maybe it should have been that. Cool. I think you should write in, Andrew. <laughs> uh well, we can just change the name of them to Red Holes, and we can't. <laughs> yeah, no, it's the um, it's the you know the the analogy. It should be a game of snooker, not a game of billiards. <laughs> That's a good point. Yes. <laughs> That's very anyway, it's it's very nice that something that has been a puzzle for actually since twenty nineteen when it was observed seems to have been perhaps uh, laid to rest now, which is great. Yeah, and it also puts into uh, play a potential question as to whether or not this is very common. Yes, yes, that's Could right. Could this be happening at the centre of our yeah, galaxy? Uh, I, I, it could be. Uh, we haven't seen, you know, a gravitational wave signal from black hole mergers in the centre of our galaxy. That would be quite a shake. Mm. Uh, but um, but it, it could potentially happen. I think that's correct. Wow. So when you say quite a shake, what, what does that mean? No, we're not, we're not going to feel the Earth move. And, and let me just add to well, that. And... That never happens, Fred. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. I won't <laughs> touch that one. Um, the, yeah, the, the, the disk of material around our galactic centre is pretty rarefied um, uh, because we can actually see, um, you know, with uh, uh, telescopes like the European Southern Observatory's very large telescope, down there in Chile, they observe stars going in orbit around the black hole. And um, a year or so ago, there was a gas cloud that was seen approaching the black hole, um, which were they expected to get torn to pieces, but it didn't. Mm. So the, the disk is, I think, fairly rarefied. It's not like some of these active black holes where there's huge amounts of material whizzing around it. Uh, I think um, these hours is fairly gentle. So there might not be 
black holes. I, I, I think there are thought to be black holes in the environment of the supermassive black hole at the centre, smaller ones. Yeah. But um, but I don't think there's anything, you know, there's nothing that yet in terms of a merger. But it, we, it could crop up any time. That, that's yeah. the thing about these things. They just pop up. We live in and, calmer waters, perhaps. Ah, nice, a nice way, a nice turn of phrase. Perhaps, yes. We'll see. If um, I wake up in the middle of the night because the earth moved, I'll know what it was. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll, I'll leave that one with you. Moving right <laughs> along. This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and team with a go. Space Nuts. And I'd like to send a shout out to all our social media followers because uh, there are lots of them, uh, particularly on YouTube where our numbers have been climbing uh, steadily. And uh, it's good to know that YouTube is getting behind podcasts because, uh, you know, that, that'll, be, uh, that'll be good for um, everybody who puts podcasts on YouTube. So they've seen that that's an opportunity for them and that's, that's good for everyone. So uh, thank you, YouTube. Uh, also, Facebook, where we've got uh, we've got two pages there. We've got the Space Nuts official Facebook page and the Space Nuts podcast group. The second was created by the audience so that they could talk to each other. So uh, it's a great place to uh, get together and talk astronomy and space science. And I particularly love the way those backyard astronomers show each other their pictures, which I mm. think is fantastic. And some of them are awesome. Some of them are amazing. And, uh, of course, uh, Twitter, we're on, Instagram, we're on. Uh, whatever your personal choice, we are there except for some of the more weird ones. Don't, <laughs> don't go. We don't like weird. We like weird in astronomy. Mm. We don't like weird in social media. Anyway, um, so uh, thank you for following us and, and certainly feel free to, uh, to join any of our uh, social media platforms. Now, we've got some uh, questions, Fred, and the first one comes from Simon. Hi, team. Simon from Newcastle. Uh, thanks for all the great podcasts. Really enjoy it. My question is around the formation of uh, life, the formation of elements and the Fermi paradox. So... My understanding is that in a normal star, a star will only form elements up to iron and that after that uh, we need other processes to form elements above iron in the, um, in the periodic table. And that I believe, not sure, that that might be when it goes supernova. So then Fermi Paradox states, you know, where, where is everyone? Well, I was thinking maybe an answer to that could be that uh, that life itself might require elements that are higher up the periodic table than are normally produced in a standard star cycle and that perhaps we actually need supernovas and that that in itself would then lead itself down to the conclusion that perhaps we are one of the first, even though Earth's only 14 years old, the universe is 13 billion years old, maybe we did actually need that period of time to get to this point. Anyway, would just like to know if that actually adds up and makes sense. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Simon. Very astute uh, yeah. and a, a really interesting question. Uh, I, I, can you elaborate a bit um, just to start with on the Thermi paradox? He did refer to what it yes it's, it's the, to, but uh, Enrico Fermi's 
famous postulate from I think 1960 or thereabouts. Where is everybody? Yeah, <laughs> uh, because the you know um, it's really applying the Copernican the the Copernican principle uh, to us as living organisms. And the Copernican principle is that there's nothing special about where we are in space and who we are. Um, and it's named after Copernicus because he took the Earth from the centre of the you know the solar system, which people thought it was before, and said, no, it's just you know, it's a, just a planet. Um, it's just a rock. And it's a rock. You know, third rock third, from. Third rock from the sun, yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, in fact, didn't we talk some time ago about how our part of the universe is actually really boring? <laughs> well, that could be... Yeah, that could be part of the you know the reason why we're here because boring's good when yes. we're trying to evolve living organisms. Um, but yeah, so Fermi's argument was if you know if there's nothing special about us, uh, and the universe is 13.8 billion years old, well, it, they didn't know that back then, but that's the sort of it still knew it was pretty old. Um, why haven't species formed earlier than ours? Uh, and uh, why haven't they colonized the whole galaxy basically because even you know even if it takes uh 60,000 years to get from one star to another as it would in our case to get from here to proxima centauri uh over a long enough time span you could do that and you know even if it even if it was colonized by robots so called von neumann machines that could self replicate uh we should have evidence that there is intelligent life elsewhere. That's that's the Fermi paradox, and right. we haven't, and we still haven't. Um, you know, sixty-two years later, we still haven't. We're still looking for it on Earth. <laughs> yes, that's right. Now, um, Simon's argument's a good one, but uh, the, the 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 issue though is that supernovae. Uh, which he's absolutely right. They're the source of many of the heavier elements than iron, um, that and things like neutron star mergers and things of that sort, which uh, which creates uh, some of the heaviest elements. Gold, for example, comes from them. Um, they, they, they started happening with probably within the first 100 million years of the universe's existence. So for almost the whole age of the universe, the, you know, what you might call the interstellar medium, the space between stars has been enriched with these heavier elements okay um and in, in fact that's how we we age we date stars in terms of how old they are it's by the number of chemical the, how, how much of the chemical elements is in their atmospheres um so a star like the sun its atmosphere is rich in all the you know i can't remember the number it's 60 or 70 Different elements which are in the sun's atmosphere uh, might might even be more than that, um, and uh, it's uh, essentially uh, a, a highly enriched cloud of gas that the sun formed from. But if you look at stars which are very very old, and there are some, they've only got hydrogen and you know a little bit of iron in their spectrum, not much at all. Mm. But the bottom but the bottom line is that over right since the beginning. The, the enrichment of the raw materials of life has been taking place. Uh, so it doesn't actually explain the Fermi paradox. In fact, that's part of the Fermi paradox, that we know this has been going on for a long time. So, you know, with the ingredients of life have been there for a long time. Um, why aren't we seeing it? And uh, you've had my answer to this many times before, that the, the likelihood seems to be that that step what we think microbial life might be might be common might be reasonably yeah. um 
something we, we, we might even know that within the next decade, Andrew. I hope we do. Uh, mm. But um, higher life forms, even plants, may not exist anywhere else except here on Earth, or at least in our galaxy, you know, the, given the number of galaxies in the universe, um, uh, 200 billion, it's, um, it's probably, uh, it seems likely that uh, there might be something in other galaxies, but the possibility is that we are it in our own galaxy, which is a phenomenal thought. Yeah, it's, it's hard to comprehend given the size and scope of the universe and all the situations that exist that life couldn't exist somewhere else. you just got to look how life grabs hold in the most hostile environments on Earth. So it stands to reason that there's got to be some form of life beyond our planet, possibly even in our solar system. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, as you say, going from microbial to plant life is a giant leap, and then going from microbial to intelligent life is yeah. a massive leap. And I think it, it you could put it down to the fact that the formula has to be right, the circumstances have to be right, the environment has to be right, all the things that created us have to exist somewhere else in some capacity for intelligent life to spawn. And, you know, again, you probably would say, given the size of the universe, it's got to exist somewhere, but no evidence of it. And even if it does exist, we may never know about it because of the distances. Yeah. I mean, you know, a, a big step with this will come with the James Webb Space Telescope. Yeah. One of the things that they're going to be doing is... Uh, analyzing to death the atmospheres of exoplanets um and yeah as soon as something you know cfcs or something like that turn up in one of those then you've suddenly changed the whole name of the game yeah uh, unless it's some life form that's been created in a completely different yeah yeah circumstance and i think astrobiologists are pretty open-minded about that they look at all kinds of different chemical possibilities for, for creating life, ones yeah. that don't involve water at all. I mean, all life on Earth is water-based, but, yeah. No, mm. great question, uh, great question. Thank you, Simon. Let's uh, go to our next question, and this comes from Liz. Hello, Lord Nuntley and Professor Watson. This is Liz from Florida, and I have a question about Mars. Now, this may be a more of a sci-fi question, but nonetheless... We know that the core is dead on planet Mars. And as we know, without an active core, there is a lack of magnetic field, which will essentially not be able to sustain an atmosphere. Now, we can terraform an atmosphere all we want, but over time, that will essentially seep out through the cracks and there will be no more atmosphere. Now, is it possible to harvest the sun's energy? As we know, the planet gets radiated quite a bit. Is it po possible to harvest that energy in, let's say, some kind of towers or something that can then send the shock down through the planet, down to the core, and recharge the core? So kind of act as a planetary defibrillator. Thank you for your time. Wow. I, I like the question. I like the concept. Very sci-fi. In fact, they did make a movie called The Core because the core of the Earth was slowing down and threatening life on Earth as we know it. So they they sent a crew down on a special drill ship to get to the core and fired nuclear charges into it to reignite it. 
So, um, yeah, that's been done in sci-fi. What, what happened, Andrew? What was the outcome of that? Oh, they fixed it. Oh, they fixed it, of course. <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, yeah, spoiler alert. Um, yeah, the planetary defibr defibrillator, I, I love the idea. Um, or packer-whacker, as we call them in Australia. I should probably now explain that. Um, <laughs> Kerry, Kerry Packer was a media magnate uh, in Australia, very powerful, very rich man, Australia's richest man for a long time. Didn't take care of himself health-wise very well and had a heart attack one day and the ambulance uh, used a defibrillator to save his life. And he found out that there just weren't many of those. Mm -hmm. So he paid for every ambulance in New South Wales to have a defibrillator. Uh, so that uh, they could save people's lives like they saved him, uh, which was a great, great thing. Yeah. And uh, we affectionately referred them uh, to them as Packerwhackers, Packer as we do in this country. <laughs> we give everything a nickname. So Packerwhackers are what a yeah, I is. That's fantastic. I, I, I think I knew about the um, principle, but I didn't know that's what they were called. Yeah, Packerwhackers. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> That's probably the most interesting part of the answer to this question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, look, it, it it is. Yeah, terraforming Mars is it, it's 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 not possible because it's not just the atmospheric. Sorry, the lack of a magnetic field that stops you holding on to an atmosphere. Uh, it's the fact that the planet's too small. It's um, once again, it's uh, it's it's connected with the just simply the gravitational pull uh, that is needed to hold on to an atmosphere like ours, which Mars doesn't have. Um, it, it clearly, at an early stage in its life, did have an atmosphere because we see evidence of water and that sort of thing. And it may well be that the magnetism then was high enough to certainly to stop it being eroded away by uh, by the solar wind and things of that sort. But um, but the it, it, it's always going to be, uh, you know, it's always going to be a negative answer to a long-lasting atmosphere like the Earth's because it just drifts off. It's not not heavy enough. In fact, we see it happening. There's, um, it's the Marvin spacecraft, uh, um, a NASA spacecraft that that can actually that actually watches at atoms leaving Mars's atmosphere. Um, there's several images that show different species of atoms drifting off. Including carbon, the carbon dioxide, and oxygen, and hydrogen, which well, makes Marvin paranoid. <laughs> think about that one. I, I, the, yes, I like that. <laughs> yeah, um, I wish I could think of things like that. Anyway, never mind. Um, but, so, stirring up the core, um, if you could do it, and I think the answer to that is there's no known physical method that would let you do that. Uh, what you'd have to do is heat it up so that yeah. it became uh, more liquid. There may be a bit of liquidity there now, but there's not enough to create a dynamo to generate the magnetic field. It's, it's, it's possibly done a piston engine thing and seized at <laughs> it this might stage. Have seized, that's right, yeah. In which case, unseizing it um, needn't necessarily start it spinning again. Uh, so you might still wind up with no magnetic field, even if you, 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 you nuked it to boil to boil it up a bit. Mm. So um, my answer to all that is to create artificial environments in space which you can control and, you know, with mega engineering. Yeah, live in that. bubbles. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. There you thanks, are, Liz. Thanks, Liz, for the question. That's a good <laughs> Thanks for the question. Probably beyond 
capability to fire up the core. Um, yeah, but you never know. One day, in years to come, we might be able to harness the energy of the sun and do all sorts of weird and wonderful things. Who knows? Uh, finally, Fred, just to follow up to something we talked about recently, this is from Greg. Uh, loved uh, the show, Andrew. Only me. <laughs> Only me. A quick question about uh, something we talked about recently. The good <laughs> professor told us that the person sending their question was right, that light would slow down through a glass rod from the speed of light in a vacuum. But he missed the most important bit for me. The light will slow down. The energy loss will heat up the glass rod. But after exiting, will the light accelerate back to light speed in a vacuum? Yes. Uh, if so, where did the energy come from? Or is the clue in redshift? Energy is lost, changing the frequency, but still, how can it accelerate back to speed at the speed of light in a vacuum? And I, I pondered that as well. I mean, if it's going at the speed of light, hits the glass rod and slows down, and then comes out the other side, how does it speed up again? Has it got P plates on it? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, there isn't. The, the, here's the thing. Light and P places are quite different. Uh, <laughs> yeah, light is slower. <laughs> a P plater is a provisional driver. Light might be slow, but yes, it is. But but a uh, but a uh, but light doesn't accelerate. Um, and we've had this. Ah, we had this yeah, I, I see where you're going. Yeah, okay. it's it's created at the speed of light. Yep. Um, so. It doesn't accelerate um, and it doesn't decelerate when it hits the glass. It is just traveling through more slowly medium. through the other medium and there's no energy loss. There is absorption, but that's not the kind of energy loss that we're talking about. That, that's, you know, um, that's like, like passing through a plate of glass will be absorbed to some extent and that basically heats up the, heats yeah. up the glass. So as far as the light's concerned, it's traveling at the speed of light. Yes, Regardless, and the the glass is just a minor infraction. It that's right. In fact, it doesn't know that it's actually inside glass. It's still travelling at the speed of light. But the physics is that the glass is slower. The, you know, has a high refractive index, so yeah, it slows. The light is slowed down. So there's no acceleration and no energy loss because of that or energy gain. Um, however, um, uh, did he do? Greg is right. Sorry, Greg, I forgot your name there for a minute. <laughs> Seeing it on it's my still screen. Greg. Yes, it's still Greg. And I'm still forgetting names, never mind. <laughs> um, you're right that if uh, one way of uh, – sorry, you're right that when photons lose energy, they, their spectrum is redshifted. That's, that's correct. Um, that's what happens in terms of energy loss. But this is not an energy loss because it's still travelling at the speed of light, so – doesn't apply. There you go. All right. Hope that helps, Greg. Thanks so much for your follow-up question. We don't mind people asking questions about questions because um, quite often in astronomy, questions do create more questions when we give you a, a half an answer. So um, <laughs> well, yeah, appreciate it. Uh, thanks to everyone who contributed uh, to this episode. Uh, now, if you do have questions for us, don't forget you can send them to us a couple of ways via our website. There's a little tab on the right-hand side that says send us your voice message. That's a good way. There's the AMA tab where you can also send voice questions or voice messages as well as uh, the old-fashioned email system. 
Uh, and uh, plenty of other things you can do on our website while you're there. Um, you can visit the shop where you can buy a shirt with that logo on it, or you can buy the tote bag there or the up there. See, that, that's the, um, the mug. Um, there's all sorts of stuff on our, uh, in our shop if you, and, and Fred's latest book and his old books, the ones he wrote with Galileo are in there too. Uh, plenty of stuff, uh, in the shop. Uh, there's a membership button. I don't know what that does because I'm already a member, so I've never pushed it, but you can check that out as well. Spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io if you want to visit our website. And that wraps it up for another week. Fred, thank you so much. Great pleasure, Andrew. Always good to talk, especially live. Yeah, it was fun, wasn't it? Yeah, it's good. Felt the same as doing it the other way. Mm. Yes. <laughs> With a few more bells and whistles. Yeah. Uh, but we'll catch you uh, catch you in a week or so. Thanks, Fred. That's great. See you soon. See ya. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, uh, joining us every week on Space Nuts. And thank you for joining us as well. Great to have your company. Keep those cards and letters rolling in. And we um, look forward to your company next time. From me, Andrew Dunkley, bye-bye for now. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.